Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class. We're back after our short winter break. And our Catechism class today begins a section that is really the culmination of everything that we learned in Lord's Day 15 when we talked about the suffering of Christ. We learned then about the extent of that suffering, about the duration, about the length of that suffering. We explored the issue of whether Christ died in both natures, that is, whether God died on the cross. And we looked a little at a man called Pontius Pilate, the cowardly judge who condemned Jesus to die. And finally, we saw that on the cross, Jesus died to bear the curse of our sin. So with all that said, our catechist remains on the subject of the death of Christ in question 40. He asks there, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? And the answer we must give is because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. So over the next few weeks, we're going to ask, why did Jesus have to die? Would it not have been good enough for the eternal Son of God to just have come into this world and set us a really good example of how God expects us to live? Why must he die? After all, it's nice to think about a baby in a manger. But who wants to think about that same child 33 years later dying an agonising death on a cross? Never mind thinking about the fact that it was my fault that it happened. So let's begin our look at Lord's Day 16, question 40, by setting the scene, by looking at some current attitudes to dying and death. Let's call it Mankind's Burial of Death. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Death is something we don't even like to touch. The prevailing culture here is one that sanitises death, that leaves it to the professionals, unlike earlier times, when a death would occur in a community. And at least here in Northern Ireland, and in the city of Belfast especially, neighbours and friends would rally round to help with the preparations for the funeral. The washing and dressing of the deceased, the laying out of the body, would all have been done at home. Death was close. Death was always with us. It was ever-present. Even small children were aware of the precarious nature of human life. Nowadays, that's all changed. Nowadays, we just make a phone call. 
and the professionals take over, at a cost of course. We see the body of the deceased now, well dressed in a coffin, washed and embalmed and improved with cosmetics, so that the reality of death, with its smells and its rottenness, is hidden from us, and we call it dignity. Death is something we don't like to face up to. I'm frequently called upon to take funeral services, and I willingly offer that service to those who have no pastor of their own, in the hope that I might find opportunity at some stage to share the gospel with them in their hour of distress. Occasionally, someone in a grief-stricken home will hand me a piece of paper containing a poem or a reading that they have copied and pasted from some internet site. And I have to try to explain to them, as gently but yet as firmly as I can, that I can't read the poem for them. For in many cases what they're asking for is inappropriate, and perhaps even untrue. Here's a popular example. Death is nothing at all. I have only slipped away to the next room. I am I, and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. I am but waiting for you, for an interval, somewhere, very near, just around the corner. All is well. To encourage a bereaved person to think that death is nothing at all is, I think, to make light of one of the most significant, perhaps the most significant event in the whole of their own life. A radical, life-changing upheaval that probably wasn't part of their plan, wasn't their wish, something that can never be undone in this life. And yet there's worse. There's a poem that's frequently read at funerals. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow I'm the diamond glints on snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. It's blatant denial of reality. New Age beliefs put together in a commonly read poem that is totally ungodly and anti-Christian. And yet, it seems this is actually what people want to think. And the reason they want to believe such utter nonsense is simply because they do not believe in Christ. And the reality is that they have no hope whatsoever that their loved one has gone into eternal conscious bliss with the Lord forever and ever. I sat in a home with two young people, both of them in their early twenties, attempting to comfort them after the loss of their baby at just a few weeks old. I patiently explained to them the biblical teaching on babies that die in infancy. I explained that we are all sinners, all conceived and born in sin because of Adam's fall. I explained that no one is innocent, not even a wee baby but that through Christ's death on the cross our sins are forgiven and we are made righteous before God 
so that we can go to heaven to be with the Lord, and that our response to the saving work of Christ is to repent and to trust the Saviour. But because babies can't make that response, we have to trust God's word, where we read this amazing passage. The Bible says they brought young children to Jesus, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, and put his hands upon them, and blessed them. I have to say they listened to what I was saying very carefully. And when I had finished, the mother then said, And will you say that he's a star up in heaven now? shining down on us all the time. We modern people anaesthetise ourselves against the reality of death and the reality of eternity by avoiding its messiness and its physical presence, by mythologising it away until it becomes an occasion for the liberal application of what are no more than sentimental placebos. We temporarily block death from our minds by filling our minds with temporal or material possessions. As if the things that glitter in this life will somehow dull the mind to the reality that one day they will all be pointless and they will all be gone. Sometimes when death strikes a home, one of the questions I frequently encounter is the question why? Why did this happen? Why did it happen to us? Why did it happen just now? He or she had so much to live for. Maybe they've been just recently married or they had a young family, or they had a responsible occupation, or they had an impressive list of qualifications, and all of this has now ended, and it's all been futile, and it's all been for nothing. The book of Ecclesiastes perfectly sums up for us the futility of life in the face of death. For death, says the preacher, renders everything that ungodly people do and achieve in this world or, as the book says, under the sun, utterly pointless. Our education, years of it, rising perhaps from kindergarten to a higher degree, to a postgraduate education, it's all pointless and all vanity when we leave this world. Our work lives, our promotions, our professional accolades, all pointless, all vanity when we draw our last breath. Our personal successes, our sporting and leisure achievements, all gone, all vanity. Our family lives, the relationships that we forge in this world, those closest of relationships are broken and irreversibly severed when death comes.
Here's what the Bible says in a solemn passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12 Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them, or the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. When I was a boy, the pastor of the church I went to had a little plaque on the table in the hall of the manse. It read, Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. It's true enough. For certainly everything that we treasure in this life will perish. Although to be fair, I might change just one word in it. I might like it to read, Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done by Jesus will last. I'm sure you'll understand why. All of our works, even our very best works, even our religious good works, even our charitable works, even our works of Christian service are stained and tainted by sin and deserve nothing but punishment from an eternal holy God. We are always, even at our very best, unprofitable servants of Christ. If you have time, open your Bible and read from Luke 17, verse 5 to 10. And notice how that passage ends. So likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done just that which was our duty to do. It is only the work of Christ on the cross for us that makes anything that we do in this life worthwhile, that makes anything that we do in this life acceptable to God. The great difference between the death of an unbeliever and the death of a Christian is only the effect of the death of Christ on the cross. So over the next couple of lessons, we're going to concentrate on what happened at Calvary and why, and what effect it has upon our lives, both in time and in eternity, and see why for the believer death is not something to be feared, it is something in which we can rejoice. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, we read these words. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Listen again next week to borrow the title of a famous John Owen book. We're going to see the death of death in the death of Christ. We're going to learn why the death of Jesus changes everything for us. <laughs>